Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with John Campbell, Professor of Philosophy at the University of California, Berkeley. His new book, Causation in Psychology, is just out from Harvard University Press. Are practices of holding people morally and legally responsible for what they do rests on causal relationships between our mental states and our actions. A desire for revenge or a fear for one's safety may each cause a violent act. In either case, John Campbell argues, there is a psychological causal process that leads from the motivating mental state to the action. In his book, Campbell claims that the existence of such singular causal relations and our knowledge of them do not depend on the existence of psychological generalizations on which, under which they might be subsumed. Moreover, imaginative understanding, or empathy, enables us to trace these one-off idiosyncratic causal sequences and thereby attain knowledge of the singular causal relationships. Campbell uses his analysis to distinguish human freedom of action at the level of causal process and to provide a new perspective on the traditional mind-body problem. Please stay tuned for an intriguing and fun conversation with a leading philosopher of mind. Hello, John Campbell. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, it's nice to be talking with you. Um, I'm really uh, excited to be talking about your book, Causation in Psychology, just out from Harvard University Press. Um, Before we get to the book itself, um, tell us a bit about yourself, your philosophical interests, um, and how you came to write the book. Sure. Well, um, professionally, I'm a, uh, let's see, I spent most of my career in Oxford in the UK, and I spent most of my regular life as a philosopher, thinking of myself as a philosopher of language. Um, And after doing this for a few years, I found I'd been reclassified as a philosopher of mind. And um, then moving to the US, to Berkeley in 2003, I found that um, philosophy of mind was all about the mind-body problem. So that, that... which in the UK had always seemed to me the kind of thing you worked on as an undergraduate and then forgot about. Uh, <laughs> but I, I realized after a bit that in the in the US, and indeed in the culture generally, in the English-speaking culture generally, the mind-body problem is really um, pervasive uh, uh, and started to think seriously about it. Um, at the same time, I started uh, simultaneously with that realization dawning in on me, I was working on causation and um, thinking about what back in 2003 were still quite new interventionist models of causation. That, <laughs> that okay, was to the start of when I started writing this book about, God, what is that, 17 years ago? Oh my, wow. Well, I mean, good long gestation and it shows for sure. Um, so let me, let me just, 
so the you know the title is you know causation psychology um and uh you know something that i have found i mean as as a as a philosopher of mind and cognitive science myself who also you know we have a plenty of overlapping interests here um mm. i ha i have noticed that um there's sometimes a distinction that that is important to make you know if if there is one uh between what what um we're claiming about a certain conception of say in this case psychological causation or mental causation and you know the the sort of the facts of mental causation or psychological causation mm -hmm. and so uh the book is about you know I, i mean we'll we'll talk about it more detail but you know you just you're distinguishing you know psychological causal claims both singular and general Mm -hmm. and um and what i just wanted to make clear uh you know to myself mainly um mm -hmm. or or and to listeners is um uh is is it about the claims you know as as you know parts of language or parts of a way we express our our thinking about something or is it about the the facts or phenomena of causation um as opposed to the claims themselves Right. That's a great question. The, the, the book is very much about both. Um, it's about um, uh, what it means to be talking about. Uh, I mean, let me start that again. It's about what it is for there to be causal connections uh, among pieces of the psychological life. And But it's, it, it, I, I find it very hard to discuss that in isolation from the question how we know about causation in the psychological life. Um, the second of these, how we know about causation in the psychological life, it seems to me particularly interesting because it's really very little discussed by philosophers, the epistemology of psychological causation. Um, and it really seems to be a big and important topic. Um, It's when you ask, start asking about the epistemology of singular causation, how we know about it, how we think about it, that you see why there is such a thing as distinctively humanistic knowledge. Um, I, yeah, I, <laughs> there are many directions we could go to from here, uh, uh, but l l let me just, uh, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, that's question so far. Yeah, no, that's that that that's fine. So there's, um, it's you know the 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 target of the knowledge as well as the knowledge itself and the, and the yes, nature exactly, of that yeah. knowledge. Okay. Um, so so I mentioned you know singular causal claims, general causal claims, right? Um, and this mm. is more or less standard fare in in you know general metaphysics, you might say. Yes. Um, uh so can you just to kind of lay the groundwork because that that's a, it's an important distinction in the book and you distinguish those two types for psych psychological causal claims and distinguish those ones from say you know physical causal claims so could you could you lay out those you know different sorts yeah. of claims and what's interesting and special about the psychological ones Sure. It, well, the, the contrast between general and singular causation is very often drawn. The, the, the idea is that um, there's a contrast between saying, for example, uh, smoking 
causes cancer, which is a general causal claim, a relation between two variables, smoking, how much you smoke, and the likelihood of you getting cancer, um, which is another variable, a variable being something that can take on different values, like how many cigarettes a day or what probability of getting um, cancer. And general causation is a relation between these two variables. Um, Lots of examples. Um, Socioeconomic status is a cause of um, good health, for example, would be another one. most scientific research on what's causing what is about general causation. Um, singular causation is when you say something like, um, that face at the window made Mary jump, um, where you're dealing with two events, the appearance of the face at the window and Mary jumping. And these are two co- concrete individual events. And singular causation is a relation between those two. Okay. Um, and um, then, in, yeah, go ahead. And um, although it's true that uh, that distinction is fairly generally recognized in the causation literature, I think, there is really no consensus on what the relation is between these two types of causation, general causation and singular causation. Um, much the best discussion of, of that question is Ellery Eels's book, Probabilistic Causation, which my impression is is unfortunately not much read these days, but it's a wonderful book. Um, and in it, Eels argues that singular causation and general causation in the physical, he, he isn't talking about mental causation at all, but he's arguing that singular causation and general causation come apart. Um, they really don't have much to do with each other, the relation between variables and the relation between events. Okay, um, and he's not talking about mental or psychological, but of course you are. But you seem to pick up on that that difference right there. Right. Yeah. Um, so, should I just elaborate a bit on the difference in the psychological? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you obviously can make the same distinction in the psychological. So, for example, um, a lot of uh, Social psychologists work on producing uh, causal generalizations about, for example, the reasons, the, the, the causes, or the psychological causes of consumer behavior, um, which factors cause people to buy which items, or voting behavior, which factors cause people to vote the, the way they do, or the ways that people get together the kind of thing the dating agencies try to use to say, well, this kind of this these kind of factors will cause this person to be a good match for this person. Um, so we certainly have lots of uh, generalizations, to, general causal claims to be found in psychology, but also, of course, there are singular causal claims, like, um, well, that, that that example, that face at the window made me jump. So there was a seeing of the face at the window and my jumping um, and one caused the other. They're two concrete events. Uh, it's because of what Bill said to Mary that I will never trust him again. Um, that um, uh, There you have my hearing Bill say that to Mary 
and uh, my never trusting him again. These are two concrete things, and uh, one is causing the other. So you have that same distinction between general and singular causation in the mental. Um, maybe I should say a word about, I, I, I don't want, <laughs> please interrupt me whenever you like, but um, uh, maybe I'll just say something about what the basic reason is that the two of them come apart, general yeah. causation and singular causation. Yeah, um, that would be a good idea. Yeah. Great. Um, I think there are systems where general causation and singular causation don't really come apart much. Um, for example, uh, uh, it used to be very popular to talk about um, uh, worlds consisting entirely of pixels. Um, the, the, the game of life was one of these, where you have pixels. The, the fundamental ontology of this kind of system is a collection, an array of pixels, each of which can be in a state either on or off. And there are general laws governing when a pixel is going to be on or off, that um, if at any one moment in the system uh, this uh, pixel has a lot of other pixels around it, that may, as it were, overcrowd it and cause it to be off at the next one. Or if there are too few pixels around it, then the law is um, that also may cause the pixel to go off in the next at the next moment. And so um, it, it dies of loneliness, as it were. So there are these simple systems defined entirely in terms of on-off values for the pixels and general laws. And so here we, you can describe um, singular causation just as a matter of illustrating the general laws. If a pixel is off at one moment and sparks into life at the next, then you just read off from the laws and the configuration of pixels, what caused that pixel to come into life. So there you've got a case where singular causation and general causation are very tightly tied together. There are the general causal, the causal generalizations governing the system, and then there are these singular causal connections between particular events, which merely illustrate the dynamical laws governing the unfolding of the system over time. That um, that this particular uh, uh, blinking into life or not is illustrating, but but it's very different in the real world where we have um, a conception of causal process, where um, uh, for singular causation we require a causal process linking the cause to the effect, and. When you have a system like that, um, singular causation and general causation really can come apart. This really was Ellery Eels's point about physical causation, that uh, you can have a system where it's a general truth that eating a pound of uh, um, uranium will cause death, um, but maybe nobody ever has or will eat a pound of uranium-235. That uh, uh, the general law, the generalization is true, even although it's not illustrated by any individual instance. Um, and things can go around the other way. You can have singular causal connections that don't illustrate any causal generalization. So let me... Um... 
So I, I'm, I'm thinking, well, there's a couple of things. Was the whole introduction of this, you know, pro, the idea of, a, you know, processes, right? Um, so let me, before, before I get to, so t- I'll ask two questions. Um, uh, one, one is just, um, so if I said something like, um, you know, my, uh, my pain in, in the tooth, you know, uh, caused me to scream, right? Um, or say something, ouch, or whatever. Um, and, um, and of course, you know, there's also generalization that, you know, dental pain causes screaming or something like that. Um, so th- there seem to be a lot of cases like that where even if eels is, you know, and you are, are absolutely correct that, you know, these don't, you know, they're not sort of maybe, you know, they're, they're not always connected. It seems like they quite frequently are. Um, and so I was just wondering um, the extent to which, you know, even though they, they, you know, sort of you can pry them apart, um, you know, the fact that very often they actually do come together, right? Um, and part of that, of course, depends on what you think a law is, you know, as opposed to some sort of a regularity that, you know, holds in many cases, but not all. Um, so that's that's one thing, and another another aspect, and this goes to the process bit, was um, you know as you know, there's always been a you know there's the human human notion of causation. Um, you know, there's a you know a counterfactual account. There's you know again these process accounts of you know uh, I guess it was fair you know with the exchange of energy or transfer of energy account, right? Which um, you know, and all of these have, have kind of played a role, but in, in particular, the counterfactual count has been particularly popular, I suppose, in the in the psychological case um, rather than um, physical cases. Um, so, I, so I guess there, you know, um, in that sense, um, you you bring in this idea that uh, you know, in the singular cases, there are these, you know, process accounts of the relationship, you know, and which is a rejection of a, of a human account. Um, and I'm just wondering how, you know, that seems to be a very important piece of, uh, of your, of the program that you're, you're defending here. Yes, it is. Yeah, no, this, this so, is great. That, yeah, that really pinpoints something, yeah. Okay, so could you you know address the those two issues? Yes, right. Um, so the, the, there are two kinds of remarks here. One about the relation between the generalizations and singular causation. That um, um, since I. J. Good in the nineteen fifties, people have been interested in cases of making it the hard way. Um, I mean, maybe one of the best-known examples is a kind of crazy example of Wes Salmon's, where Salmon said, okay, you're um, playing golf, you're, um, uh, you, you swing to hit the ball, but you slice the ball. It bounces crazily up a tree um, onto a bow where it's caught by a squirrel who runs along the bow with the, with the ball, and eventually gives it a kick 
whereupon it lands on the green and trickles gently into the hole. Um, and the point about this kind of example is that on the face of it, I mean, this was uh, Salmon's example was that on, on, on the Salmon's model was that on the face of it, everything that happens here made the outcome less likely. Um, um, but nonetheless, following the causal pathway is very simple. To follow the causal pathway, you just follow the path of the ball. Now, there aren't any generalizations here, like if you slice the ball, you'll get a hole in one. If a squirrel catches your ball, you'll get a hole in one. That none of these things are true. There aren't any uh, generalizations here to subsume the thing under any causal generalizations. Nonetheless, um, the causal pathway is very clear. Now, these cases of making it the hard way, once you look for them in the physical case, um, it's, it's really very easy to find lots of them. Another famous example, going back to good, was um, uh, Moriarty is standing at the top of the Reichenbach Falls um, with a huge boulder poised um, to hurl at Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is strolling along at the base of the cliff. Um, uh, Moriarty is very powerful and very dexterous. Um, now, if he gets a shot at at Holmes as a goner, but at the last minute, who is this? Watson rushes up, and it's too late for him to do anything except give the boulder a wild shove, and it topples crazily down the hillside, going from side to side until eventually it crushes uh, Holmes. Now, again, the... There aren't causal generalizations here that you can appeal to to explain the causation. Um, it's just not true that crazy shoves of boulders cause deaths or anything like that. I mean, the whole system may be ultimately deterministic in that if you look at all the particles involved, um, maybe they are all governed by strict Newtonian laws. Nonetheless, the system may be chaotic in that um, very small differences, differences too small to measure in practice, like the positioning of a blade of grass or the exact force with which Watson pushed the boulder. Maybe very small differences, imperceptible differences there, make a huge difference to the outcome. Nonetheless, although you can't use uh, the generalizations to derive knowledge of causation, if you're watching this scene, um, then it's very clear what caused what. Watson's shove caused Holmes's death. You just follow the trajectory of the boulder. Um, and it doesn't need to be subsumed under any generalizations here uh, for that to be true. Um, and once you start looking in the psychological case, as you say about pain, pain is a very good example of a case where there really do seem to be causal generalizations governing what will produce pain in people. You know, big physical injuries will reliably produce pain, not invariably, but pretty reliably. Um, you know, the art of torture is... Um, uh, it, it doesn't need all that much homework. Um, there are just are generalizations here that govern all people. Um, uh, but once you start looking for um, cases of 
making it the hard way in psychology, you suddenly realize that they are pervasive. I mean, if you think about Proust dipping a Madeleine in a cup of tea and that triggering that flood of memories, um, um, you would be taking the wrong... That's a singular causal claim, all right. It's the dipping of the Madeleine that... that, um, it's the taste of the Madeleine that brought back all those memories. That's a singular causal claim. But there is no generalization here. It, it, you would be getting the wrong idea altogether if you read Proust and thought, ah, so that's what happens when you dip a Madeleine in a cup of tea. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, fair, fair enough, fair enough. Although, uh, 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 although you know, it could just be that, that level of describing, you know, what happened. Um, you know, dipping a Madeline doesn't cause a flood of memories, but um, uh, the, you know, links between, um, you know, smells experienced in childhood and and memories, um, uh, you know, that is a, is, a, is a fairly common phenomenon that, that we're still exploring, obviously. We don't, we don't, you know, but I mean, there does seem to be those sorts of generalizations. Uh, well, I mean, I think your general point is still, you know, well, well taken, and it and it, there seems to be like, um, you know, a a, a whiff of hempel in the background here, sort of. Absolutely, you know, yeah. Yes. Yeah, where where we're not talking about you know explanation in terms of subsumption under laws, right? Um, right. So I I, mean, I, yeah. I I do yeah, it's. it's Anyway, yeah, you know, the general point is is correct, although it does remain the case that we don't really know what sorts of psychological generalizations there might be, you know, even if at, you know, at a certain level of description or a certain type of description, I should say level of, you know, dipping a Madeline causes memories, yeah. um, it, you know that that might not that you know that seems to be inappropriately understood as you know a case of a general law. Right, Hempel is a very good example, actually. If you think about Hempel on the function of general laws in history, where um, Hempel, <laughs> God bless him, completely unpersuasively argued that historians were in the business of finding out general laws about the. Um, about human beings, just uh, and that the cases that were being applied to were merely special cases of those general laws. Um, the the thing is, if you think about um, uh, Watson shoving the boulder down the hill, I said that the system there may be chaotic, um, uh, but, but though deterministic, it, in fact, it, if you think about it, it doesn't really matter if the system is deterministic at the underlying level or not. So long as the boulder crashing down the hill hit Holmes, so long as you have that continuous causal, that continuous physical object there, that lets you trace the causal pathway. And the existence of the causal pathway and our knowledge of the causal pathway don't depend on the existence or our knowledge of causal generalizations. Um, and I think the same is true in the um, uh, psychological area that if you um, are following the twists and turns of someone's processes of thoughts and feelings, 
that is not the, the existence of the causal connections you're discerning there does not depend on the existence of generalizations um, and the uh, our knowledge of the causal processes here does not depend on knowledge of generalizations just as we have an ability to follow the movement of a physical thing and trace a causal pathway in that way so too we have this ability to trace the causal the ballistics of someone's thought and feeling we we can trace the trajectory of how someone is thinking and feeling through various twists and turns um in a way that really doesn't depend on our knowledge of generalizations or the existence of generalizations it's fine to hunt for them but that's not to say that there's some guarantee that they will be there right so um the i guess the second question was the the causal processes um oh i'm sorry yes i i, I yeah no no that's I fine i i mean um, I, I i did mean to get um, back to that yeah yeah um uh, so, so you, I was, I was just contrasting what you had said about, you know, the causal process, oh, yes. no, you I'm know, sorry. in the, the squirrel case, or, yes, yes. or um, great, yes, yes, as okay. opposed um, to a human and etc. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I agree that um, counterfactual approaches to causation are um, generally very important, and um, um, in uh, discussing mental causation. They've really been the only game in town. But uh, there's a set of arguments going back to um, Ned Hall from about, well, when, how long ago is it now? It's 20, 30 years since Hall published his um, article about two concepts of causation, where Hall had this um, very simple example where Billy and Susie are throwing rocks at a bottle. They are both great shots, um, but they both shoot, uh, throw at roughly the same time. But Susie's rock hits the bottle first, and um, uh, Billy's rock whistles through empty air a moment later. And then we say Susie caused the smashing of the bottle. Um, now, there's no counterfactual here. Uh, to say that if Susie hadn't thrown, the bottle wouldn't have smashed. A causal theory, a counterfactual theory of the singular causal connection here would say, well, what makes it causation is that if Susie hadn't thrown, the bottle wouldn't have smashed. But if Susie hadn't thrown, the bottle would have smashed anyway. Billy's rock would have hit. And we've ha th th that example has been very intensively discussed over the last 30 years. And I think the answer is that there is no uh, convincing counterfactual analysis to give here. Um, actually, the analysis, <laughs> the story of the count examples and, uh, and uh, counterexamples and fresh attempts at an analysis are really very familiar from different areas of philosophy. Um, it's really proven, I think, not to be possible to get the effect of... Um, saying what's special about Susie's throw uh, in purely counterfactual terms. I mean, the basic idea here is what matters is that Susie's rock hit the bottle. There was a spatiotemporal path from Susie's throw to the smashing of the bottle. 
And uh, that's really the simplest uh, example you could have of a causal process is not to be understood in counterfactual terms, is that the trajectory of this rock caused the smashing of that bottle. Now, suppose we look at the psychological case. Um, I think probably the most influential remark um, ever made on psychological causation was by Davidson when he said, you can have two reasons to perform an action and you can perform the action for one reason rather than another. And Davidson said, um, what makes it the case that you're performing the action for one reason rather than the other is that uh, um, one reason causes the action and the other one doesn't. Um, that remark of Davidson, it seems to me, it was in a moment what made the whole Wittgenstein-Ryle approach to um, thinking about reasons and causes go out of the window. And people said, yes, th th that's compelling, that what separates out this reason is, as uh, the one that um, is the reason for which the action was performed, is that the reason caused the action. What we don't have in Davison is a convincing analysis of what it is for one reason to be causing the action uh, right. rather than the other. Now, on the face of it, Davidson's uh, example here is um, like Hall's example. It's a preemption example. Um, just as Susie and Billy are both factors that could cause the um, smashing of the bottle, so you have two reasons, e either one of which could cause you to perform the action. Um, uh, I'm the defendant in a law court. I'm um, arguing, the, the, the prosecution is arguing that the reason I attacked this, uh, the victim was um, a desire for revenge. I'm arguing that even although I had the desire for revenge, I had another reason uh, for acting, which was self-defense. I acted for one reason rather than the other. But it's entirely consistent with that scenario that if I hadn't acted for one reason, the other reason would have brought about the outcome. So even if I hadn't acted out of this motive, that other motive would have made the thing happen anyway. And in the Susie and Billy case, the only way really to, the, the, the natural way to resolve this, it's not like this is something you come to at the end of the chase. This is the first thought anyone would have. It's the trajectory of the rock that is the important thing. The process constituted by the movement of the rock, that's what makes it, uh, Susie's um, throw be the one that caused the smashing of the bottle. Similarly, with the defendant in the law court, um, there's a process connecting the one motive, the self-defense, let's say, to the action. There wasn't that process connecting the other motive to the action. That's what makes the difference, that um, there is a psychological process connecting one but not connecting the other. Now, this isn't a matter of generalizations applying to the thing. This is just a matter of what processes are operative in the particular case. Okay, fair enough. Um, but that's sort of, uh, I mean, I, I want to ask about 
David's, well, uh, yeah. Okay. So, um, so in the one case, you know, there's, there's clearly psychological, pro uh, sorry, physical process, right? The rock and the bottle. Um, and in the psychological case, of course, the whole idea, I think, I mean, uh, there, there's a whole nother background here of, of, of mental causation, um, versus physical causation, um, and not just, you know, reasons causing things. Um, um, so I'm, I'm just wondering if you could say a bit about how you, how you navigate that very, uh, kind of minefield territory, um, where it, you know, you, you, you are, you seem to be you know, committed to psychological processes as, um, uh, in some sense, real, um, you know, relations between psychological events and other psychological events or, you know, actions, bodily events. Um, uh, just, just like the, the physical, you know, spatio-temporal relationships that we can trace in the case of the rocks, you know, Sally's rock and Billy's rock or whoever, Susie, sorry. Um, uh, so that seems to, you know, the, if, so if you take that analogy, if you keep going with it, then, you know, then there's a spatio-temporal relationship between the psychological processes, um, uh, and that seems to imply that, you know, I'm sort of going down a, a, a very familiar path at this point that, um, you know, the psychological process is in some sense, you know, a, uh, a neural process or something like that. And yeah, you know, so cause, cause the neural processes are, are, are surely spatiotemporal, um, and that's if the psychological processes are, then, then the natural thing to say is that, you know, maybe they're identical or, you know, it's one, one or another, you know, mind-body relation. So, um, so is that, are you committing to all that in terms of psychological processes, the causal processes? Uh, I, I'm not committing to that, but the, the, there is something, that would be perfectly consistent with what I say, but there is something um, important to uh, uh, stand back from here, just just for a moment. Um, suppose you take uh, the Davison kind of scenario where you have someone who has two motives for an action. One is self-defense and the other is um, hatred or revenge. Um, and... Um, uh, we say, well, one rather than the other was the cause. And we're asking, what does that come to? Well, the way you, uh, one way of hearing what you just said would be to say, well, what it comes to is that there was a neural connection between the two things. Um, th that's the important point. That, uh, And then you start to think through how that would go. Well, you've got a self-defense center in the brain and you've got um, a revenge center in the brain. And there was a causal, a neural pathway from the one center to the action, but there wasn't that neural um, uh, connection between uh, the between the, the um, revenge center and the action. Um, 
Now, <laughs> partly it's just a little bit difficult to take that seriously. The brain is very densely interconnected. Practically everything seems to be connected up to everything else. Um, it's going to be very difficult to see how you make these kinds of distinctions in purely neural terms. Um, but difficulties fine. There are lots of things that are difficult. Um, the, the more fundamental point is, um, suppose you take something like um, the sensation of pain. You might say, well, the sensation of pain, uh, that, that's a neural process. Got to be a neural process. So what, what, what else could it be? That's fine. Um, my, the, the remark I would make about the sensation of pain is that we don't, first of all, conceptualize it as a neural state. You could know all about pain. You could think about pain without even knowing that people had brains. Um, and if you ask what makes it difficult to reduce pain to the neural, well, the kinds of things people would usually say is, is, is are that, um, well, pain has a kind of characteristic simplicity and unity that these complex neural states don't have, or you can imagine someone perfectly well being in pain without imagining anything about their neural state, or you can imagine their neural state being as it is without them being in pain. There are these kind of familiar arguments about the difficulty of reducing pain to the neural. Now, um, I, I don't really want to take a stand on whether those arguments are decisive, just that they are important. Um, and if you're going to do the reduction, there's something substantial to do to address those points. Um, and the idea of a psychological causal process that we have is also like that. If I say, if I'm one of the jury l listening to the defendant and I say, yes, that's what happened, he acted out of self-defense, um, uh, then here again, I can imagine the desire for self-defense causing the action without imagining anything about the neural state. Take any neural state you like. I could imagine the defendant being in that neural state even if they hadn't acted out of the motive of self-defense. And our understanding of acting for one out for one motive rather than another um, uh, seems to have a kind of simplicity that whatever complex uh, uh, analysis you give of the brain states here, um, it, 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 the very idea of psychological causation doesn't seem to have that kind of complexity. Now, as in the pain case, it's not that I'm saying you can't do it, you can't give a neural reduction here. I just say those familiar obstacles neural reduction that you face in the pain case are also there in the case of psychological causal processes. Um, okay. I mean, that's, you know, that, that is fair enough. Um, but you need causal processes. And that's what I'm sort of like trying to get a little bit more clear on. What are these causal processes that would correspond, you know, be analogous to the physical causal process, spatio-temporal causal process that we trace from Susie's throwing the rock to the broke breaking of the bottle, or, you know, Watson's pushing the boulder 
as it careens down the hillside and then it ends up, you know, crushing homes. I mean, we, we follow that, but we, we don't seem to have that sort. So we can posit some sort of a, an analogous process, but, um, it, it, I mean, what, what exactly is that process, um, if it is not necessarily in any, any, you know, it doesn't have to be neural, but it has to be something. It's, well, it, it, it's a psychological causal process. And um, uh, I, I'm giving fairly simple examples so far of um, uh, or, or the, the desire for self-defense causing a, a, an action, for example. But, we, we we do the, I, I mean we we do it all the time following one much more complex psychological processes on one another part i mean a, a reasonably complex conversation like the one we are having right now is a case in point where um i try to follow your psychological processes as we're talking and you, 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 uh, you, you're doing your best to follow whatever I'm up to. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you see what I mean? That, um, yes. Uh, and if things go well, we do it. Um, um, and, uh, you know, we do this the whole time. This is the whole joy of conversations, that you can follow the twists and turns of someone else's thinking, their thoughts and their feelings. And an ordinary conversation is just an example of following someone else's psychological processes is not a matter of bringing generalizations to bear in the other person. And there is nothing predictive about what you're doing in an ordinary conversation. Um, it's, I mean, if you could predict what the other person was going to say, it really wouldn't be worth having the conversation. Um, the, the whole point is that um, it's unpredictable. That's why we have chats. Um, but uh, nonetheless, you, if things go well, you can absolutely follow the causal pathways behind everything that your interlocutor is thinking and saying. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine, good. Um, let me let me uh, go back to you know a remark that you said you know very early um, about you know the epistemology and um, you know our knowledge of. Uh, in particular, of, of singular causal claims is an important important facet of, of the account that you're giving. Um, and in particular, uh, you employ the idea of um, imagination, or I should say imaginative, imaginative understanding, um, as the source of our knowledge of um, singular psychological causal claims. Could you, could you explain that part of your account? Yeah. Um... Um, well, um, the psychiatrist Karl Jaspers had um, uh, what in psychiatry was a very influential discussion of um, a distinction between two approaches that a clinical psychiatrist can take to a patient. One is um, what he called subjective psychopathology, where the psychiatrist tries to get inside the patient's head and understand exactly what is going on there, how one thing is unfolding from another. And another is a kind of external um, social scientist's kind of perspective in the patient, where you say, here are the general symptoms uh, that the patient is exhibiting, 
Um, uh, here is the treatment that's prescribed for a patient meeting those general symptoms. And you just regard the patient as a kind of locus of a bunch of generalizations. Um, and that objectifying uh, stance is different to the project of getting inside the patient's head and following the twists and turns of what they're thinking. Um, that's what Jasper's called empathy, that following of the twists and turns of the patient's reasoning. Um, when people uh, call someone crazy, what's, um, what people find objectionable about that is that there's a kind of distancing in it that uh, means just treat this person as if they're a locus of um, uh, generalizations. Don't even bother trying to get inside their head. And yes, was famously thought with, with some psychiatric patients, you can't get inside their head. Subjective psychopathology is impossible for these kinds of patients. But empathy is the name for that kind of following of the twists and turns of the idiosyncrasies of another person's thinking and feeling. And that is a following of a causal sequence. Okay. Um, yeah, that's the, so that's the imaginative understanding. Yeah. That's how we gain our knowledge. Um, yeah. Um, um, yeah, go ahead. It's very important in everyday life, this. I mean, suppose you're, you're having, <laughs> this is from the old days before the lockdowns and so on, but suppose you're having dinner with people you know and um, uh, late at night someone says, well, how did you two get together? Um, then on the face of it, there are two different ways you could answer that question. One would be the kind of social psychologist's answer, um, giving uh, uh, the kind of answer that someone from a dating agency who studies the, the big data on this might give, saying, well, we were both from a similar socioeconomic background. Our body languages were complementary. Um, we had very similar experiences with our, with our parents when we were growing up. Um, and I don't know, the, the, the whole kind of story a social psychologist might take. But in fact, it's unusual for people to give that kind of answer. What they do is they, they tell the story. They say, well, here's how we met. Here's, where, here's how we first got together. He was our first big row that lasted a year. Um, and so on. You get the narrative. Um, you get something, a sequence of which imaginative understanding is possible. That's how we usually tell the stories of psychological causation in our own lives, using that kind of narrative, that kind of distancing and objectifying, where you just give causal generalizations governing people getting together, and uh, then say, and of course, we illustrated those causal generalizations. That's not what we do. We let our auditors trace the the singular causal pathways, the one-off idiosyncratic path of the golf ball, as it were, in this particular case, we tell the whole story as to what happened in those narrative terms. And that is giving the singular psychological sequence here. I see. Okay. But, um, you know, again, this, this um, empathetic access um does it really give us knowledge uh i mean it seems like so often um 
well, on the one hand, it seems like there are an awful lot of, you know, people who, uh, and maybe this is just a different sense of empathy, um, who, who don't really empathize very much or very well, but they are pretty, can be very clear about causal relationships, um, psychological ones. Um, uh, but also, it just seems like, you know, these stories of um, imaginative understanding, right, that you just sort of described, um, are, are quite often fictions, right? Or at least we, we believe, you know, we may not believe them to be fictions, but they, you know, they, they turn out to be, they turn out to be fictions, you know, they're, they're elaborations. They're, I mean, confabulation, you know, is, is, a, is a huge area of, of you know, psychological research. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll say all kinds of things about why we did what we did, and we're wrong, we're completely wrong. Uh, but that's, of course, what we what we believe, and so we can we can knit together these very complex, you know, psychological, processual, causal chains using empathy, empathy or imaginative understanding, and that's perfectly fine as a as a and it's you know it's it's a it's a robust social practice and, and so forth, but it doesn't it's it seems like in so many cases it doesn't doesn't give knowledge. I, 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 absolutely. I mean, you're sitting at dinner and um, someone says, so how did you two get together? And uh, your partner tells uh, uh, some story and you're sitting there, that's not what happened at all. And, um, <laughs> you know, that really happens, absolutely. Um, uh, and actually, Jasper was concerned about that and said it's very difficult to achieve complete knowledge in this case in this kind of, uh, of this kind of thing for the kind of reasons you're giving in fact we, we don't regard that as true in everyday life um, uh, I mean in real life um, uh, it's true that there are there are cases where we get it wrong there are cases uh, um, where we are sincerely misled about what our our own train of thought and feeling was in a particular case. But um, um, we also regard it as something that um, can be established uh, beyond doubt what the train of Thurman's thought and feeling was in the singular case. Um, we do this in the law courts. Um, if To go back to that example of was it self-defense or was it a desire for revenge, which one caused this individual in this case to act, then... Um, what the jury has to do is get an imaginative understanding of the defendant's frame of mind at the time of the actual incident. And that can be known, as we say in the law, beyond reasonable doubt. We, we regard the uh, certainty we can achieve here as sufficient to justify sending someone to their death or at any rate to a very long jail sentence. Um, because we think it was one motive rather than the other, we really do believe we can achieve certainty in this. We bet how we bet the defendant's life on this kind of thing, um, and it, you can see how you can get certainty in a particular case. I mean, just suppose that in that revenge, self-defense kind of case, the jury is thinking, well, we think it was uh, probably um, uh, a desire for revenge. Well, if 
an eyewitness is produced who testifies that just as the knife went in, the defendant said, that's for Billy. (laughs) That's definitive. It wasn't self-defense. And we know that now um, uh, in, in, in a way that, is beyond reasonable doubt. That, that, that's the phrase we actually use. So, you know, being philosophers, it, it's natural for us to torment ourselves about the bad case or what if things go wrong. Well, that's true. Things can go wrong, but things don't always go wrong. And in the good case, we will really uh, regard ourselves as having certainty sufficient um, to justify playing in a very high-stakes game. Um, and it's not ju- I mean, the law course is a dramatic case, but we do this all the time in everyday life. Um, uh, uh, I, I have a disaster happen to me. I, I get my leg broken, and oh. I see... No, no, I mean, I mean, I haven't had my leg broken. I, I, oh. I, I, I think <laughs> you had. Sorry. <laughs> not yet, anyway. <laughs> If the Lord spares me, um, but so suppose let, let's suppose for the sake of the example, I get my leg broken, and when I give the, you you the news, I see a little smile cross your face, and I think I know exactly what you're thinking. You're thinking this takes me out of the running in this or that competition. Um, well, I think I'm following the the singular train of thought here. I think I understand exactly what was behind that little smile, but. Um, um, and that can lo- you can lose a friendship for that reason. Um, I mean, it's fine to say in a theoretical kind of way, ah, yes, but we could be wrong. Well, that's right, we could be wrong, just as it could all be a dream. Um, it could all be an evil, evil neuroscientist stimulating my retinal nerve endings. Um, but uh, in the good case, we are getting it right, and we have the right to take it that we're getting it right. Um, it, we know that, that this is what happened. Um, um, I mean, civilization and ordinary social life just depends on this kind of thing. True. Um, and uh, we're, we're almost out of time, unfortunately, um, because I would, you know, I would just wonder if, uh, you know, we need, if, if, you know, I'm just thinking in terms of epistemology, whether, you know, just belief or somewhat, somewhat warranted belief would, would be good enough. Because if you call it knowledge, it just seems like, uh, well, there has to be a fact of the matter there, right? And then, uh, you know, whatever I happen to, whatever the jury happens to believe, uh, you know, in theory, there is a real process, right? occurred and 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 they could be wrong even if they send the man to you know on to death row right so um yeah well, just, it's, right. it seems like something weaker than knowledge would do the job well what, what, the, the legal phrase is beyond reasonable doubt i mean you might say that's well that's not why i'd call knowledge if you believe it without reasonable doubt um, but you know, okay, uh, um, is is what would you call it? A practical certainty, a moral certainty. Um, we regard ourselves as fairly routinely capable of achieving that kind of 
highly warranted or uh, 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 call it whatever you like, you know, something epistemically good about the belief. Um, uh, and I really don't see how we could uh, justify the whole practice of the law courts if we didn't um, th- think you could achieve that kind of certainty. Uh, I mean, how, how on earth could you, could you say, even as a theoretical proposition, sending someone to jail for 20 years was justified on the basis of a, uh, our best guess? You know, that, we don't regard a good guess as being um, sufficient to send someone to 20 years in jail, but we do regard our judgments about what was motivating someone in, the, um, in a criminal case uh, as having that kind of weight. You know, we, we, we think we can have the, the right to make these decisions. Okay. Um, we we could keep going, but um, <laughs> I would love to, uh, we, we, we are on time. But um, uh, I'd like to end with a question about what um, what you have on the horizon as far as your you know next project. Are you working on another book or following up with other other you know loose ends or what's what's on your desk at the moment? Sure. What I'm thinking about right now is um, the difference between the ways humans and animals think about time. That practically every animal has got some kind of timing mechanism, some kind of uh, temporal cognition. Um, but it seems to be there's something special about the way humans think about time that um, we think of ourselves as located in a linear time with our own births and deaths on the timeline. And that seems to be something that only humans do. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that any other animal does that. And the question is, why do we do it? I mean, the rest of the animal kingdom seems to manage fine without thinking in terms of a linear time in which their their lives are plotted. So what are we getting out of it? It's It's not enough to say, well, there is a linear time out there and we're picking up on that. There is lots of stuff out there that we don't pick up on. Um, and it's not just that we bother representing linear times. We give it an absolute centrality. Uh, most languages have got some privileged way of indicating the temporal location of the events that you're discussing. So it's compulsory to have some kind of tensing or, uh, in your report of an event. So it's not just that we think in terms of a linear time and the other animals don't. We give it a really peculiar centrality in our lives. And why do we do it? If all, <laughs> if all our friends in the animal kingdom are managing fine without this capacity to think in terms of linear time, what are we getting out of it? Um, th- th- that's the problem I'm trying to address right now. Um, Good. Uh, it sounds very interesting. Um, so I look forward to uh, to seeing your work on that. Um, but we, un- unfortunately, we, we have to uh, come to a close at the moment. So I just want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with uh, New Books and Philosophy and um, present your work to the wider public. It's really been fun talking to you, Kari. Thank you. Great. So goodbye.
Thank you again. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye-bye. Farewell. Stay safe. You've been listening to my interview with John Campbell, Professor of Philosophy at University of California, Berkeley. We've been talking about his new book, Causation in Psychology, which is just out from Harvard University Press. This is New Books in Philosophy. I'm Carrie Figdor. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And once again, stay safe and thank you for listening.